Hi, everyone. Thank you for joining us today on Blockchain for the Billions. Today, we have Jordan Wexler of Early Bird. Welcome, Jordan. Thank you. Excited to be here. Really excited to, to see and hear what you guys are, are up to at Early Bird, um, especially as it relates to mainstream kind of adoption and applications. Um, just for a little bit of clarity on our backgrounds, I have a more you know mainstream background. I come from CPG, startup brands, um, definitely not very technical, but kind of providing that mainstream perspective in, in the office at Decasonic. Um, whereas contrasting, Alejandro is a full stack developer, comes from traditional finance. Um, and so that's kind of the viewpoint that we both have here. So really excited to um, see what you guys are up to at Early Bird. To kick us off, you know, one thing that we ask everybody on this podcast is really what got you interested in crypto uh, and blockchain and, and sort of more broadly Web3? Yeah, so I think that innately I am, have always been a diehard optimist uh, and always looking at opportunities uh, that I know can have a big impact on the world and hopefully trying to see the good in them. And I think with Web3 in general, right, the, the thematic kind of uh, purpose behind it is this true idea of giving users ownership and a, a, a deep sense of democracy uh, and a lot of these wonderful values that I live by and that I think can be extremely powerful and uh, extremely uh, uh, have an incredible positive impact on, on the community uh, at large. And so when the idea of blockchain technology started to surface in my world, which is probably like seven years ago-ish, uh, of course, crypto was my entry point, as I think it was for most. But as I explored further, you know, I think the opportunities are just incredible. Uh, and of course, with the earliest stages of what that can be and what that really looks like. But uh, hopefully, as we continue to explore further, have incredible founders that are building in this space, we can really start to, you know, show a whole new world of, of what interacting in the digital world can look like and the power of digital assets. So I think it's a thrilling space and I'm really excited to be part of it. Yeah. So with that being said, what were you working on uh, before Early Bird? Yeah. So before Early Bird, which officially was three years ago, which is crazy, uh, I was running a software development firm called Agility. Uh, and we really were end-to-end -end product development. I was there for four years and I truly felt it was you know, the most incredible experience for just generalized exposure into technology, right? I've always been a technologist, I feel, but to be able to really work directly with founders and build product uh, and deliver product from zero to one, uh, it's just an incredible experience because you not only get to learn from the founders, but you get to really understand what is being built, why are we building things, how to best build them from a deep product perspective. Uh, and then of course the actual delivery of the product to the marketplace. And so we helped launch over 150 products while I was there. Uh, and it was about a team of 250 engineers globally. So we had New York, Vietnam and Singapore were, were our core offices. Wow. wow. So very impressive. 
what why did you decide to kind of transition into web3 like what about what was like the straw that broke the camel's back that made you want to kind of hunker down and get um building in in web3 so it actually wasn't web3 that really triggered the shift and the next stage of my life from agility to early bird um it was actually much more foundational uh, when my beautiful baby niece was born, Izzy, uh, four, almost five years ago now. And when she was born, I was, you know, head over heels in love and found myself wasting hundreds of dollars on really ridiculous stuff and really hating that I was just throwing away money for stuff that she will never know that I got her and will have zero meaning in her future. And so I really wanted to invest in her and her future as my father did for me. And so that was really the catalyst that started this idea. When I looked around, there was no simple or meaningful way to gift a financial asset to a child. And so with that problem statement, I really kept, you know, kept coming up as an entrepreneur. When you really find something great, you continue to, you know, stir over it and think about it. And, and, and it continues to potentially haunt you. And uh, finally, I took the jump to start Early Bird. And at that point, it was really about creating equal access to uh, investing. As we explored further, of course, and what a true modern portfolio looks like today, uh, there was, of course, the necessity to create the accessibility into crypto. Uh, and you know, beyond crypto, a multitude of digital assets, which we were working towards over the next couple of years. But really ensuring that every American family has equal access to all these different types of investment classes, because I think that's the biggest fear within Web3, right, is going to be this great separation that's already horrible with the wealth inequality gap. It's only going to continue to get worse with Web3 because of the lack of knowledge and the speed at which Web3 is now moving, the separation of kind of the general public uh, and our goal early bird is to really build that bridge of accessibility because that's the most important thing and to do it in a really simple and approachable manner. That's awesome. Yeah. I mean, it's, you know, the, the wealth inequality gap is, is certainly a huge problem today. So it seems like you were just sort of driven by this huge problem and, and set out to solve it, which, um, you know, typically is a really good reason to start a company, but to generalize that experience, um, and since you do have so much experience working with founders um, and building product, what are some reasons that you've seen that may be good reasons to start a company versus some reasons that you've seen in your experience that may be um, not as good reasons to start a company? And, and what do you, you know, if you've noticed um, kind of patterns there in terms of what reasons uh, may lead to success more often than not? Yeah. You know, it's, it's slightly cliche, but if you are not... One million percent committed and passionate about the problem that you have identified and want to solve, do not go all in on it because it will be the most treacherous, intense, exciting, wild adventure and journey that you've ever been on. And if that just deep dedication is not in your blood, it's not like pumping through you every day, it is really, really, really difficult. So, you know, the motivations behind what you do can be different. I, there's no right or wrong way there, but 
you know, this was a problem that I was so connected to, so deeply was part of my upbringing, right? It changed my whole life. My dad gave me money when I was 10 years old in a TD Ameritrade account. And we sat down and learned how to invest together. And it was completely pivotal pivotal for how my life formed. I ended up using those funds to fund my first startup called Succeed Overseas based in China in 2012. And I would never have had that opportunity without having that kind of foundational capital that was given to me and entrusted in me uh, that led to that opportunity. So you know, that was always something that I was so passionate about. And I knew the impact it could have on the world if you create that access from day one for a child. And then, of course, with Izzy, my niece, and now nephew, Remy, too, you know, it just came, it was so clear that that was needed to be solved in a really, really great way. And with that, you know, today, three years later, I wake up even more excited and motivated about what we're building. And we've had some crazy ups and downs, uh, but continue to fight on. And so I just like really check yourself that if I've seen so many founders start things, you know, they don't, they, they think is interesting and they're maybe somewhat passionate about, but it's not part of their existence. And I don't mean to go over the top, but like you're committing everything to this, your whole life. Absolutely. Your life. So that would be my, my, you know, there's ways to check that. And don't go all in right away, right? This I was percolating on this for two years. And, and finally, I was like, okay, I have to do it. Yeah, Amazing. I mean, I think that speaks to a huge part of the design journey of like empathizing with users, right? Like if you choose a problem that you're not going to be able to empathize with, um, then, you know, you're really not the best person to be solving that problem, right? Exactly. And I think that your passion for early bird and your commitment to this solving this problem is is very prevalent. It really shines through. Um, and something we also like to ask the the founders and CEOs we have on this show is how did you decide to start, you know, building with Caleb, your your co-founder? Um, what about it makes you two have such a good dynamic? Um, can you explain that to us a little bit? Yeah. So Caleb Frankel uh, is my co-founder, COO of Early Bird. And we actually met in 2012 in Qingdao, China at a bar. Uh, it's still up for debate which bar because we forget. <laughs> but uh, we met, you know, when we were both about 22-ish. And, uh, you know, we really just hit it off. I feel like one of my superpowers is really reading people and and, and seeing uh, uh, people in a very authentic uh, light. And when I met him, I was like, I knew this was an incredible individual. And, you know, we were at least going to be really great friends. He then moved back to Chicago, where he's from. I stayed in China for three years. We continue to stay in touch. And then when I started Early Bird, or started to have the idea of Early Bird, I knew I wasn't going to do this on my own. Uh, you know, people have different opinions about this, but mine is so deeply, you need a co-founder. Uh, the journey is so intense and there's so much responsibility and pressure throughout the process that if you don't have someone that you, you're really your counterpart that you can work so closely with, you know, challenge each other, support each other, do the things necessary as in any true partnership or any relationship, uh, it's, I, I'm not sure, I don't, I know we wouldn't be where we are today for a fact. So when I had the idea of early bird, you know, I had a short list of three people and really Caleb was on the top of that at number one. And, you know, I 
reached out to him with a text message uh, and we got a call. I pitched him this idea. You know, he was interested, intrigued for sure, but it takes time, right? I mean, I'm asking him to leave a very successful uh, job that he basically had helped build up a Chicago-based tech company called Yellow, uh, that he was making very good money, getting married, to leave all of that for this just, you know, idea and he saw though the alignment and the passion of what of course i had and you know ultimately he knew it was a no-brainer decision to, to come on it and do this and so you know i think what what we found was somebody i i think about this a lot right it's really so deeply embedded in trust that you like i genuinely deeply truly trust caleb even though we have different opinions at different points, I know that I look at decisions on the spectrum of two things, right? There's emotional decision-making and then alignment decision-making. And the emotional side, you can be on different spectrums. Of this, and, and Caleb and I will be on different spectrums, right? Like, I really think we should do this and he thinks that. But after you talk things through and you get that next level of like the alignment, 99% of the time we are aligned. Uh, and that is invaluable and helps lead the ship of now 14 people. So uh, that's that's really the, the background story of, of how we kind of got together and 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 the success we've had. Love that. And, and so now you, like you've touched on, you're grown to 14 people. Um, what's sort of the, what's your favorite part about the culture you and Caleb have been able to sort of curate in your office? Yeah. Um, so I think this is a really fascinating question because of the shift in the world of remote work. Mm-hmm. Um, so of the 14, we are completely distributed in the US and Canada, actually, Calgary. Uh, and, you know, I've met and spent time with probably 10 of the 14, I think, and we'll see the four on our offsite shortly. But um when we think through culture, right, some of the key things that we are deeply committed to is one, uh, being family first. We are a family, we are a fam tech platform. Uh, we have a lot of parents on our platform, both parents on our platform and on our team. And that true commitment to family and building a, a wonderful family and, and truly providing that balance is, is critical to the nature of what we're both giving to our end users and what we provide to our employees. Um, another value that we have is never forget the joy of what you do. I think that is one of the hardest things in this process. I'm not sure how old you both are, but you know, if you're in your mid thirties committing your entire life to this, like it's not like in 20 years, it's like, oh, now I can like start living in any way, right? It's These are the most incredible special moments on podcasts like these and recognizing that and being in the moment and and, and being present in that is so important. So we really drive that home. And then uh, vulnerability is such a big piece of this, right? Especially in the remote work culture, Uh, being vulnerable, being open about kind of, you know, where you're at in your space, uh, the difficulties you're having that are much harder to be relatable to because you don't know, right? You're on a Zoom call, but like, you know, your son could be really sick and you're like feeling stressed out about that or whatever that is and having the space for that vulnerability to be shared and then to actually give your employees the space to like go take care of the things they need to knowing that, you know, the accountability is really project-based and not hourly based. 
Yeah, absolutely. I have personally worked in both uh, in office and, you know, fully remote positions since um, sort of the pandemic hit in 2020. And I think definitely like that vulnerability and approachability are super key to kind of engaging the team and, and providing that family first yeah. aspect. The, it really comes from everyone, but definitely mm-hmm. starts with Caleb and I. And uh, Caleb actually just got a great uh, publication in uh, Business Insider about Fantastic. kind of mental you know, the, the challenge of uh, mental health in this time and space. And uh, Caleb has been an extremely uh, strong and, and, and powerful example of what it means to show that vulnerability during all, you know, moments of like all hands meetings, right? That's not, they don't have to be one-on-ones where you're having these, you know, you're setting the tone culturally and during an all hands meeting where you have everyone there expressing these vulnerabilities is, is is extremely critical and Caleb has done an amazing job kind of guiding that and helped absolutely establish that foundation for everyone to feel comfortable to do it as well so you know it really does start at the top and I encourage all founders to check themselves and know that sharing is is extremely powerful absolutely um I would love to read that that article as well yeah um and so sort of uh, shifting gears to the actual application of early bird, um, one of the biggest blockers in, in mainstream adoption of you know any sort of Web3 or crypto or blockchain technology is kind of the UI and UX, user interface and user experience, uh, which early bird seems to have done sort of flawlessly. Um, so how did you and Caleb decide to really prioritize that and lean into that? And what can users sort of expect in the future any updates or anything yeah well really appreciate the the kind comments uh definitely not flawless at this point tons of work uh and improvements and enhancements to be made but from day one we ensured that we were user obsessed uh and there are some really critical steps to be a product-driven organization that you have to follow to build great user experience design within your app. Uh, And some are simple, some are complex, but if you are not fully dedicated to structuring a testing environment that is way before you push product live, so we structured any kind of like mid fidelity clickable prototypes, uh, ensuring that they have live testing through end users and parents that we knew we were driving these features towards, uh, then high, another round of high fidelity testing. Uh, you know, this doesn't have to be intense, long-term multi-week testing, but two-day allocation, you have a script, you're running through that, really understanding the feature sets that you're driving uh, is a critical stage to, to really build the best product available. And so we followed that from day one, um, of course, with the mentality of, you know, following the MVP structure. So really a minimal viable product that you're not overbuilding, but you are building still any kind of feature sets that you know will be extremely accessible to your end user. So I think, especially like Web3, right? There's, there is this concept of, um, or resistance almost that like, oh, that's, if you say the word blockchain, the majority of America has no idea what you're talking about right? There's still such a separation of knowledge there. And so 
for us, we had to really think through, okay, how do we create this on-ramp? And I think this is so important for any product, any business, right? You have on-ramps that are accessible, that are uh, that are available, that don't feel that maybe like, you know, pick your crypto that you don't even know what you're talking about and, 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 and you know, you're creating uh, a language that is restrictive almost to your end user. So how do you think through that on-ramp? So for us, it was really public market investing and a fixed managed portfolio, right? So you don't even have to choose what you're investing in. We have five fixed managed portfolios that through a couple of questions, we provide a recommended portfolio. So literally within three minutes, you can start investing your child's future, right? And for us, that's step one. Now we have you inside. We have you open the door and your first foot in. Now, the beauty is that it expands the opportunities to introduce so many new things to our end users, right? So for us, the next stage of introduction was crypto. Uh, and of course, we have an incredible partnership with Gemini, one of the largest crypto exchanges, and we've been able to collaborate and work together so that we've designed a system where now I have that public market investing portfolio. I feel comfortable, safe. I've taken my time and the steps necessary. Now I can start to look at what is the future of investing and how can I ensure my child has ownership in that future, right? And a lot of that comes through, you know, uh, a calculated education. So creating really great email series and lifecycle comms that you're walking people through this, right? Because everyone has a different timeline. And I think that's one of the most critical things we're thinking about UX, UI, right? Not, it's, there's no one funnel, one path, step-by-step step go through, right? There are so many customizations to that and understandings of the different stages that you have to be ready to adjust and figure out so that you can get the broad base through the funnel, yet they're going through it on their own timeline and, and still hitting that end goal. So that was like our, and it's still our primary focus. I mean, we're constantly looking at funnel optimization uh, and, and where the conversion drop-offs are, right? Like for us, uh, adding a child SSN was a big drop-off point. And it actually wasn't because people were scared of the security or like adding it because they had no idea where it was, right? It's just like not an I thing you know. And so that takes a while to understand, like, why is there such a job off? You have to ask the right question. You have to explore further. You have to talk to users and then understand where do most people even keep a document like this and then provide that context and evolve that experience in app so that you're guiding literally a user off app to get something they need to go back into the app to add that, to finish the conversion, right? That's one example that... We just spend a lot of time on. That's an awesome example. I think just hearing you talk, it, it's clear that you have a lot of uh, expertise on creating digital products. And, um, you know, how much of that do you think comes from your experience, um, you know, kind of building that uh, digital software company and kind of working there? And were you primarily doing front end kind of design? and Or were you you know, even more abstract than that, just kind of a product leader at this organization? Yeah, uh, definitely more. I was the COO the last two years I was there and definitely more into the product leader side of things, going through the earlier product ideation process, right? Really understanding the questions of, you know, what is the problem you're solving? Why are we solving it? Uh, then distilling down really what is the foundation to start with, right? Every it's all about scope and scope control, right? Everyone wants to build a massive product. That's just the easy solution, right? Early bird, when we first started with my ideas, were insane, right? They're 
you know, I wanted a whole social component interaction of friends investing and kids, blah, blah, blah. Like, you know, and that's important and you need that big vision, but then it's really getting diligent and chopping that down and distilling the most foundational value you can provide for that MVP, right? And so that skill set that I picked up at Agility, doing it 150 times was invaluable, right? It's practice, it's a muscle that you build out. And then of course, the next stage is the whole design process and really understanding, you know, where and how to bring users in. If you don't have user voices in your product design and development from the earliest stage, you're going, 99% of the time you're gonna fail, right? Maybe you get super lucky, but that is so off. Uh, you're gonna fail if you don't have that user voice in because all you're doing is making major assumptions and you're not proving them out. And so the good news about UX UI design is it's much lighter weight. You don't have to build anything yet. You can literally create mid-fidelity black and white uh, uh, wireframes and go test them, right? And then of course, the build process and then the development process uh, as kind of that stage three and, you know, ensuring that you build a really clear way to still get staging builds out and to be able to get that testing uh, integrated into the full process. Absolutely. And there's so many tools out there available to wireframe and, and create, um, you know, iterations of, of designs like this. Um, but, you know, one thing you said that really stands out to me was just the focus on, UX research um, and this sort of user obsessive viewpoint of your product, right? I think that's like drastically missing from crypto and blockchain today. Um, oftentimes when I get pitched deals, um, there has been very little uh, UX research. And to your point, right? I think a lot of founders think, oh, I'll get to this later. Oh, this will be later down the roadmap. But I really do think there is something about starting on day zero. Um, because if you're constantly spinning your wheels and you're trying things, you're not being very pragmatic or empirical about them, um, you're going to end up going a hundred different directions. And really the simplest thing you can do is just listen to what the users are telling you, right? Um, so how do you go about conducting this UX research? Um, what, what are some kind of tools and resources that you recommend that have really impacted your user research kind of uh, expertise as well as your broader product expertise? Yeah, definitely. UXR is critical. Um, but again, there's always a balance to all this, right? Because, you know, you can also go sometimes too far deep on testing and, and delaying then getting something actually live and then in the hands of people. So I want to be cautious that there's always a balance to it, but it is absolutely critical to bring users in at different points, right? And so when we think about kind of the stack that we've used with different tools, of course, Figma is the gold standard today, right? It used to be Envision, now it's Figma. Uh, Figma's incredible uh, for all design needs and creating clickable prototypes, uh, just really quality stuff. So once you have your design, UX UI design, wireframes, built out. You can then create a clickable prototype. It's very simple. Uh, literally you're connecting components with like a line. So you don't have to be an engineer to do it. It takes a little bit of time to just learn and figure out. And you're not testing this full app, right? You want to really be focused on a specific feature set that you're testing out. Like, you know, the onboarding of our app. It's not the full app. It's literally go through the onboarding. And, and so then we will create that clickable prototype. 
we'll probably bring in five people. So one important thing is always creating those relationships and that pool of testers and people so that, because that can take a lot of time, right? Finding people to actually take it. But, you know, we call it your ICP, right? Your ideal customer profile. Who is that? And then ensuring you have about, you know, 25 to 30 people that are always down, love your product and are willing to just jump on. They also love product themselves and they're testers, right? And you do like 30 minute tests where you have a little script, a couple of questions that you open up with, walk through the wireframes. They're literally screen record. They're talking out loud while they're walking through it. So you'll be able to hear and see like, oh, this question's odd. Like, why are you guys asking? I don't even know why you'd ask that, right? So you can start to really get inside someone's brain. You're taking notes, boom, wrap it up, five of those in a day. And you have your incredible, you know, after three to four, you should start seeing the trends that are very similar and you go make those quick iterations and updates. And then, you know, you're on to your next round of, of work. So that's really, you know, from a, like a tech stack perspective, you know, there's a lot of good testing tools out there, but honestly, you can keep it pretty bare bones, right? You need Figma, you need the prototype, and then you need Zoom, record, script, and you're good. Uh, when it comes to then actually delivering like live product, uh, a couple of tools we use that we've just integrated with that are have taken a while to kind of stand up, but UX Cam is really interesting, right? It actually allows you to watch a user's experience live and see where they click through and drop-offs and all that good stuff. Uh, another one is StatSig, uh, which is an A-B testing um, uh, tool that you can use uh, actually live so that you can you know, drive people to different forks of different screens and really get a better understanding of conversion rates, uh, which is of course what we're all aiming towards. And I'd say those are some of the, the primary tools that we've been leading into. The biggest, most important thing too is data. Uh, so I'd say as you're building out your app, starting to think through at the earliest stages, how you're going to structure your data. So you need a CDP, a customer data platform. We use segment, which is kind of, again, the gold standard, uh, but getting that started early and thinking through how you structure events and properties and attributes within your product is critical. I highly, highly recommend it. And what segment does is it helps to take all that data and create space of the taxonomy and different labeling and, and uh, 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 structure that you need for that data. And then you can pass it out to third-party uh, integrations like Amplitude, which is a data analytics tool that's critical, right? Because the bottom line is that if you don't know what's going on in your app, you have no guidance for direction and roadmap development. And so we look at Amplitude on a daily basis, uh, create tons of different reporting, we can see different funnel. That's how we literally can see the funnel conversion, right? We can see where the drop-offs are, the percentages that go through. Um, and so that's really critical. And the last tool that I recommend is Braze. So segment, so everything goes into segment, it can go into uh, Amplitude. And Braze is your lifecycle communications tool. Again, I believe Braze is the gold standard. All email push and SMS basically get pumped through Braze. And it's, it's just a thing that a lot of founders don't, really think through until it's like, oh shit, we really need this. Um, and so it's better to get that structured earlier than later. Yeah. And Jordan, I think, um, you know, those are all great resources for tooling, but something that you have that not every founder has is this deep product expertise and experience from firsthand ex uh, sort of experiences, right? And so what 
um, resources would you recommend to uh, founders today that want to be more product oriented, that want to push their sort of knowledge of product to the next level? Have there been any foundational books for you or has it all predominantly been through conversations and firsthand experiences? Yeah, no, there's, I'd say there's tons of great tools out there, right? Um, design thinking is really one of the foundational principles of, of building great products, right? Um, and the design thinking process was structured from probably one of the best design agencies in the world called IDEO. Uh, and I highly recommend learning and deeply understanding design thinking, right? It's really the cycle of, you know, understanding, exploring the problem, testing, iterating, and then delivering, right? So it's it's a cycle that you go through um, and it's extremely valuable. Uh, so that really is, I would say, the number one foundational kind of product philosophy that I live by and that our team lives by. Um, anything that IDEO really has delivered and 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 gone through is is incredible uh you know a lot of it leans into this idea of these kind of three quadrants right desirability feasibility and uh viability those are like the three quadrants and then in the middle of that is really where you want to be as a product um and so tons of great learnings there and then of course yeah and just creating a network of amazing product people having frequent conversations about uh, different approaches and, and, and how your organization structures product delivery is is always a, high, a highly recommended um, approach. Very cool, yeah. I mean, absolutely. I think, you know, the design process really just emphasizes uh, user obsession, really, right? And being uh, pragmatic about empathizing with the problem from a user perspective and putting yourself in the user's shoes to see, to make sure that you're not really being prescriptive, right? In your in your kind of designing of solutions. Yeah. So hundred yeah. percent. I I come from a, a CX background, so I really think um, customer obsessed is is the right the right word, the right term. Um, and I really appreciate that because a lot of well, like we what we call it is crypto building for crypto is what we see. Um, nowadays and so really having that customer focused mindset i think is really valuable and of course sourcing from um, their users themselves will help for sure um so you kind of touched on a few but i want to um pick your brain on some of the roadblocks that you experienced kind of early on when building early bird um what were some of the main aspects whether it's in hiring or developing um what were some of those roadblocks and how did you and caleb overcome them yeah so Definitely tons of roadblocks um, throughout the journey, but of course, all probably some of the greatest lessons learned as we've evolved. From a product standpoint, one of the biggest first challenges was us exploring this idea of third-party contributions directly into a custodial investment account. Basically, it's not a flow of funds that is feasible uh, because of AML, anti-money laundering, and a lot of regulation and compliance. And so like many fintech organizations, crypto organizations, blockchain, whatever type of product that you're building into, we are all heavily reliant on third-party 
integrations, right? Uh, and so for us, right, we were deeply, and we still are deeply uh, connected to working with Apex Clearing, right? Apex Clearing is one of the biggest uh, clearing houses that powers all the biggest fintech uh, companies. And basically we came to them with this idea uh, that we wanted to simplify the process of gifting, right? So that Uncle Jordan could send $100 to my niece and it would be the seamless and meaningful experience. And for five months we got, no, that's not possible. No, 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 no. And I think one of the most critical skills to build out as a founder and entrepreneur is the ability to accept that others are going to say no, but that is not the final answer, right? That's just, if you are willing and you have that grit and grind to dive in deeper and get creative in your problem solving, there's always a solution. That's just a fact. There's always a solution. Uh, and so we spend five months, you know, talking to every type of vendor, every type of backend money movement solution, um, every type of custodian and treasury and just like got deep into everything. At the same time, Gail and I didn't have the background in all this, right? So we're learning in real time and gaining all that knowledge. And finally, after seven months, we've designed out a backend money flow that would facilitate the process for third-party gifting directly in a custodial investment account. And that was, you know, one of our biggest, earliest wins as it was foundational to, again, the user experience of what it means to gift an investment to a child, right? We didn't want it to be, have to be redeemed by the parent and a gift card and all that. We wanted to be direct and we wouldn't, you know, sway from that commitment and we figured it out. So that was definitely one of the first major roadblocks that we experienced and went through. Uh, luckily found a great decision. And then, you know, endless, endless things, uh, you know, the app store rejecting us, uh, right when we were gonna launch in December, 2020 for the holiday gifting season, it's literally Christmas. And we're like, we have to get this product out and we are now rejected in this black box of Apple, right? And so there, you know, one of the best things we did is always, always falling back on your network of people and founders. It's just so critical because we didn't know what to do. So Caleb and I have to, you know, built great networks and we called and talked to probably 50 other founders. Like, what, does this happen to you? What did you do? How did you figure this out? And within four days had a pretty good, you know, strategy when, you know, to different law firms. I mean, it was a crazy scramble. Again, sent this whole thing, figured it out, got approved, uh, you know, six days before Christmas and, uh, you know, went live. Um, so, these kind of struggles and challenges are going to be constant, right? Fundraising, uh, raising our series seed was the most challenging thing in the entire world. Uh, I couldn't empathize more with every single founder, especially right now. Uh, but again, it's, it's about that just complete diehard commitment to what you know you're building is a need and a necessity in the world and that someone will understand that and see it and believe in you. And uh, we pitched for our series seed, which was our third round of funding last summer, 150 VCs, 150 VCs, and had over 600 conversations. I had them all logged. Uh, it was grueling, it was punishing. It questioned everything about Caleb and I as humans, as founders, as, as friends. I mean, it was really like, intense and wild, but we stuck with it. We fought, 
Uh, and ultimately, I swear to God, the 151st pitch, we had we had another like more internal round running, so we were still going to survive, but we're still pitching. And the 151st pitch was the 776, which is Alexis Ohanian's VC, a pioneer in crypto web three, and their fund is you know just incredible. And literally the the morning or the morning before we were going to close this like internal round, they called us and said, we want to lead the round. We love you guys. And we were like, just a joke. <laughs> like, <what? laughs> yeah. Are you kidding me? <laughs> well, they, they say the 151st time is the charm, right? <laughs> I guess so. I guess so. Uh, it's a painful <laughs> charm, but, uh, <laughs> and you know, we took it, we got, we raised a $4 million, you know, incredible round. It changed everything for us. Six months uh, and literally the 99th yard line. And so, you know, it's possible. It's just, it's, you know, the commitment and forever just perseverance and resilience that you have to go through to, to make these things happen. And it doesn't stop, you know? There was a nice little celebration. You always have to celebrate the small wins. That's one of my hard mottos. No matter what it is on a weekly, monthly basis, you, it is mandatory to celebrate the small wins because if you don't, it's just they go by really quickly and you can continue to be lost in all the complexity of, of everything else. So, you know, we celebrated, but we're on to the next thing. And of course, hiring. Uh, and, you know, soon we'll be up to our Series A and it's going to be a, a whole other battle. So something to be ready for. But I think the biggest thing is taking those learnings from every single roadblock and, and challenge and leveling up. You know, you're like a totally you're, you're a superhero. You level up every time you go through a battle. <laughs> and Absolutely. it always circles back to like what you said earlier if you're not a million percent in then just don't go in on it because these roadblocks they're going to happen early and they're going to happen often so be prepared because it's it's like you said it's a roller coaster um and and so with that what kind of like roadblocks are you facing now like what are some of the more modern problems you guys are looking to get through yeah so for early bird uh we're in a really interesting and exciting time, right? We built early bird from what we call from the ground up in uh, what we call multiplayer mode, right? So it's a really interesting thing in product. Most products are singular focused, meaning you have one core user that you're focused on, right? And that user is going through, right? If it's uh, um, Coinbase, right? You have one user that is going on, setting up their account, buying crypto. Right. Uh, for early bird, we identify that it's critical to have multiple user personas within our product. So that you have the parent that is setting up these accounts, investing in their kid, and you have the giver persona, which is the third party contributor. But that's also a core user persona, not a one off transaction, because we want it to be a continuous you know, uh, involvement beyond just birthdays and holidays, but celebrating a child's life and investing in them is critical for us. So what we found is that we actually found product market fit on the giver, which is amazing. We are one of the best uh, investing apps to give to financial asset. And we found product market fit for the parent. We are one of the best investing platforms for early childhood investing for families. What we are now and what truly differentiates us and makes us the you know platform that we know will be the checklist item for any new family in America to start investing in their kid is that embedded growth engine that we know the product can drive, right? Where parents 
And that it's it's really that social interaction where parents are inviting givers onto the platform and givers are sending gifts to non-early bird users and bringing on new net new families to the platform. And that that interaction is really happening. And we believe that the connective tissue there is something called emotional capital, right? How do you elevate the experience beyond just an investment of $100 into a child, but you actually do that with this wonderful attachment of a video memory or a moment that you're celebrating that is so impactful, right? And so with Early Bird, every investment in you include some kind of video component that you record, that you then can contextualize and almost create this like legacy moment. And we now see that it, uh, through something called moments, just that connective tissue, that that is going to be that we are, you know, I've done a lot of research on, a lot of user feedback, a lot of user testing on, that that really is the tissue that can bring together and create that in, uh, a required engagement on the platform that is beyond just set and forget investing. And I send gifts triggered through birthdays and holidays, right? And so that's where we're at right now. It's a very complex solution. And again, we've spent a lot of time on deep user testing, understanding the user's needs and wants, understanding where users go for what we're providing outside of early bird, right? And how we can be a better holistic alternative. Uh, and so we're launching what it's called Moments Phase 1 uh, uh, at the end of August. And we'll be rolling out a lot of different feature sets around that concept, testing it, validating it. Um, and so that really is is where we're at right now in our, in our primary focus. Uh, the second piece of all of that is continue to expand our crypto offering with Gemini as one of the challenges in fintech is that you are definitely dependent a lot on these third parties, right? Uh, and so we're collectively building out some new uh, technology that literally Gemini doesn't have yet to, to uh, enhance and uh, improve our crypto offering to our end users. But that takes time, of course, to work with them. So those are two of the core focuses that, that we have right now. Really cool. I'm excited to be able to be the cool auntie giving my my friends, kids, crypto. <laughs> yes, it's going to be awesome. <laughs> yes. Yeah, so Jordan, within that, I think you alluded to probably one of the most difficult questions for all founders, which is really, how do you validate product market fit, right? How do you know when you have product market fit? And then how do you grow sustainably after validating product market fit? Um, we recently did a panel with Brett Harrison from FTX. And one of the things he alluded to was this concept of what he liked to refer to as the, the hiring Ponzi, which is essentially when you hire people so fast that you spend all your time training them and then they hire people and they spend all their time training them. And then no one is actually able to get any work done. Yep. So one, how do you validate product market fit? And then two, how do you actually grow sustainably after that? Yeah, so I think product market fit is a fascinating concept and one that can sometimes get overemphasized because of the macro perception of what product market fit can be, right? Product market, you know, there has to be really clear, and it's different for everyone, right? But I think there needs to be very clear definition of, what you are going for and the intention and outcomes that you're looking for with these, with the scope of work that you're delivering, right? So like, you know, early bird reaching a million families, that's not product. I mean, that of course that is product market fit at the most macro level, but, you know, 
we are we are so far from there just using that as the north star definition doesn't really make any sense right so for us we had to really think through okay for our core user group of families a family being able to set up an investment account in three minutes and start investing in their child and set it and forget it uh and investing you know x amount per month were some of the definitions that we looked at to define what product market fit would look like and we then released this right these different feature sets and so all of that is embedded in the data and basically looking at different conversion levels that you're looking through your app right there's a big difference between scale and really successful conversion uh and i believe with an early bird right we have you know thousands and thousands of families now investing but what the biggest thing is that we've looked at is that within someone starting a custodial investment account from a parent from an app install to a completed custodial investment account we're at almost like a 45 percent conversion rate then, right which is really great through a massive funnel uh and then within that you know 99 percent set a monthly reoccurring investment with a uh, average of 65 or about $68 per month reoccurring monthly investment into their platform. To us, that defined product market fit, right? Because now it's there's a differentiation between product market fit and then growth market fit. Because at the top of the funnel now, it's about feeding, you know, adding fuel to the fire on growth. So we could spend up, increase our CAC and drive a ton of users. But if you're spending a dollar at the top of the funnel and it's worth six cents at the bottom of the funnel, that's not product market fit, right? You're yep. never going to be scalable. So that's really our focus. And that was phase one of product market fit for us. And same on the giver side, right? That's downloading the app and successfully sending a gift. Now we are defining the next phase of product market fit and what that will look like and how that will be defined in correlation in the next big milestone for us, which is our series A, right? And so I think it's the ability to consistently be looking at and updating the definition of what product market fit means within the confines of what you're building, right? Because you can successfully achieve different levels of product market fit as you're building. It's not a one fits all solution. Mm, very interesting. Yeah, I like that delineation a lot. Um, and obviously, you know, it takes a tremendous amount of work to not only achieve product market fit, but also to validate it and then start acting on that sort of in you know intuition or data driven uh evidence um and and you know you guys have really been shipping pretty fast so something that i think would help a lot of the founders out there and, and builders is how do you balance this speed of execution and this intensity for the work that you're doing every day with time for rest and recovery so that you can perform at your best it's funny you ask, because uh, <laughs> this month of August, we like to set themes for the month. And uh, this month is theme is uh, pace, right? And the critical nature of pace and how you really think through the marathon and not these micro sprints, right? Mm -hmm. Building a startup, joining a startup, being part of a startup, you will have forever intense responsibility and pressure as a founder, but also as an employee, right? You are literally the success of the startup is dependent on you. And it's not for everyone, but if it is for you, yeah. wonderful. And then within that confines of that, 
how do you figure out your own pace and sure that you have really clear um, guidelines and in, internal checkpoints uh, to be checking yourself. Um, so, you know, I've talked to all my employees about this in different ways on our one-on-ones. Um, and some have, you know, one checkpoint is how many nights am I staying up past 12 o'clock, right? And how many am I allowing myself, right? One a week, great. Two a week, great. What, whatever that is for you, that's your definition. But say you mm-hmm. say two a week and you look back at the week and you've done five, that's unacceptable. You are sprinting during a time of that you will burn yourself out, right? And mm-hmm. it's all about the deep, continuous evaluation of pace and also putting that uh, accountability on your team as well, right? So that people are checking in on each other. Like, look, I can tell, like, you know, you are clearly overextending yourself. It's yes. Just, and, and the idea of, of sprinting really hard to an end point in the startup world, but then really truly burning yourself out and not being able to then do the next scope of work is detrimental to a startup because we aren't focused on like these extremely defined sprints. I mean, it's ongoing. You, yeah. Literally, we have our sprint of the holiday season, but then literally right after the holiday season, then we're starting to raise our fund, our Series A. Like, like there will forever be another milestone that's following it, and you just have to make sure that you are running at a pace that makes sense for you and that you will be as productive, efficient, and continuously motivated as possible. Yeah, absolutely. I love that focus that you guys have on these open conversations and these really great communication uh, skills that I think are just important to succeed in any career where you're working on a team. Yeah, thank you. Really appreciate it. Yeah, absolutely. And we'll leave with one, we'll leave you with one question. Um, and that is going to be sort of for the mainstream audience. And that's why should parents or, you know, third-party gifters use early bird rather than a traditional investing app? Yeah. So with early bird, we truly are deeply committed to the idea of living at the intersection of love, community, and capital. Uh, That is where we live, right? And so our 100% focus is on being the checklist item for any new family that has a kid. You buy the baby books, you set up your nursery, and you set up your early bird account to invest in their future. And the responsibility doesn't have to be just on the parent, right? With a traditional brokerage account, of course, you have to go through all the hoops and you know complexity of setting things up, and it's a very disconnected, uh, uh, confusing process. Um, and with early bird, our goal is to greatly simplify that for every American family, right? If you're in the top one percent, five percent of America, you know, and you have your wealth manager, which we have a lot of people that say, well, why would I use early bird? Early bird's not for you, right? That's you can continue to use your solutions and that's great. But we are targeting the 90% of American families that don't have that access, that aren't investing, that are maybe scared about this process and feel the insecurity uh, that, you know, they haven't started yet. So, you know, is it too late? And we want to create that comfort that every single family can get started at any point and get started today. And then you can do it as a collective community. And it's not just capital. You know, it's not just, it's not just like when you turn an adult and you look at this account, you have $50,000 in it. The whole dream is that you start an early bird account when this child is 25 
and they can open up this app and see $100,000 invested from everyone that meant something to them throughout their entire life with video messages and love and support that 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 contextualizes different moments in their life and their journey that provides that wonderful sense of, of just love uh as well as of course the capital to, to to dream big and do what you want like that is what early burning capsules and if td ameritrade or schwab could do that i challenge them any day uh to to, to come to come for that and come at us because you know <laughs> you can't achieve that in that level right that is really only something that early bird will be able to provide and we hope every family will be able to uh uh add the part of their life That's i it. love awesome. it love it love thank it, you so much jordan love what you're doing for financial accessibility in the crypto space um do you want to shout out kind of like where our audience members can find you and early bird and where they can learn more yeah absolutely uh a good place to start is getearlybird.io. Uh, that is our home base website. A lot of good information there. And then, of course, you can find us on iOS and Android. Just type in Early Bird and download the app today. Um, and check it out. Send a gift. Everyone has a child in their life that they love. And there's no better gift uh, at this time than a meaningful investment in a child's future. Absolutely. Like awesome. I said, I can't wait to be the cool friend gifting all of my friends' babies uh, crypto. Yes. Um, yeah. <laughs> Thank you for joining us. Um, thank you for having me. Thanks so much, Jordan. We really yeah. learned a lot. Cool. Totally. Thank all you. Right. We'll talk to you later.